All right, welcome back to the Saturday show. I'm Spencer Hall, Salt City Hoops on Twitter. It's 97.5, The Zone, the sports leader. Um, finally, we have a little bit of uh, some, some, some kind of more fun news, right? It, just, it doesn't feel nearly as heavy as it was last week. Last week, I was a little down, got a little bit of feedback, everybody's saying <laughs> that I was really depressing. People wanted to know if they needed to send flowers. But I'm, I, I'm feeling a lot we better. Knew, we knew last week when you showed up in a, uh, in a tank top and sweatpants that it was, <laughs> <laughs> it was a bad time. <laughs> a big bucket of ice cream, you know, just kind <laughs> exactly. of sitting around. Let's catch up a little bit um, on this week a little bit. Tell me, tell me how you felt about this week. Uh, terrible, and then okay, and then terrible. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if there are too many other ways to interpret that. The Oklahoma City game was completely out of control um, with you know with with the the uh, the, the roughness. Um, you know, Detroit is a game you have to win, especially um, with them missing Brandon Knight for most of that game. And uh, um, yeah, and and the Knicks was just. You know, I was tweeting at you that I was regretting last week on the show when I said how excited I was to see jazz basketball again after I had been consumed with with work the whole previous week. And uh, you were telling me that you had warned me not to be so excited. And uh, the Knicks game proved that out, I think. Yeah, no, I, I'm being a little I'm being a little facetious with my enthusiasm, but um, it did. For some reason, I think I, I, I went over. A hump after that last that that four game loss kind of was the first time that I lost hope a little bit, and then I, I kind of got on board with what everybody's saying. Like let's just you know have some good basketball as much as possible, do whatever happens. And here's here's the thing that I really wanted to talk about this week. People have made the case that the Jazz it doesn't benefit them at all to make the playoffs and then miss out on the chance to be in the lottery, and the the only way to build a team is through the lottery. I um, I, I think the I've always said that the risk of creating a losing culture is too great to try to tank. So, purposefully missing the playoffs, I, I think, is ridiculous. But there's a there's a third alternative, and that is, you know, playing the best you can, not making it, which might happen, and then you avoid the chance of getting embarrassed, which I think it's almost worse to make the playoffs and then just get run out of town in four straight games. So anyway, that's what I'm trying to get at. That I'm not talking about I don't care about the draft pick or whatever. What is it, a 0.5% chance of winning the lottery if you get in at the No, realistically the you're talking spot? you're talking about being at the bottom of the lottery, which is you know, which which is almost as much of a crapshoot as being in the, you know, fifteen to twenty five right. range that where the Jazz have been uh for the last few years when they have had picks. Right. There's there's just no no chance that that's going to be I, I don't know I mean the the chance that they win the lottery and even if they win the lottery it's not like this is a season where everybody's saying yeah the top guys are going to be complete yeah but game changers well that's that's true but uh, I feel like we said the same thing in um what was it three years ago when the Cavs picked Kyrie Irving and we were kind of like yeah Kyrie Irving he, he's all right but he's not you know he's not Derek Rose mm-hmm. and he's certainly not Kevin Durant and he's turning into one of the best point guards well, in the Kyrie, NBA. Kyrie Irving was a he was a can't miss guy. I mean, even though he'd missed his 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 season at Duke, I mean, nobody ever wavered off his really potential. I don't I don't remember anybody ever saying like uh, maybe no. Well, I, I mean, mean he, I, I don't I th- I think I think everyone was agreed that he was the best player available in that draft. But I don't. I don't remember anyone saying this guy is a, a definite a superstar. A transformational player. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's a guy. He's a take-you-to-the-promised-land kind of point guard. 
And I don't think I think I think his uh, you know his his comparable. I mean, so here's here's a here's maybe a better example. Um, John Wall, right? I mean, he, John Wall is uh, a guy that was you know first pick in the draft. I think mm-hmm. everyone agreed that he was the best player available. Is he a transformational franchise point guard? Probably not. So I mean that's that's I feel like that's it's this kind of draft. Yeah, the guys at the guys at Truth About It, the True Hoop um, uh, Washington Wizards blog, even wrote a a, a story the other day wondering if John Wall is even a max player. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I just think I mean a couple of years ago, there were questions of whether he was going to be the greatest of all time, and now we're wondering like should anyone max him out next season? That's amazing. Um, I uh, I think. Speaking of the Knicks, though, I want to talk about one other thing. The Knicks, you know, are, are falling apart a little bit. You know, they've got they, – they beat the Jazz, but the – you know, no Carmelo. I, I don't know. Fans in New York are a little bit uh, out on the Knicks a little bit right now, just kind of wondering what's going on. J.R. Smith is loving it. He's loving not having <laughs> to share the ball with anybody. But uh, you look at what Denver came up with out of their trade with New York, you know, basically swapping squads, you know. So we've got New York in Denver, and now Denver is, is in New York. And they've put together a nice team. So Nice again, team. They've won 11 in a row. Yeah, I think uh, I love, and I love Danilo. You know, I've talked about him forever. But he I is just your think, guy. You, yeah, you are a big fan. But I, I think that doesn't, I mean, a situation like that doesn't come around all the time where a team, where a team like New York wanted Carmelo, they were going to do whatever it took, and then they were able to get a ton of extra pieces for it. But those were the trades that were on the table. So I think with all the talk about the OKC model and things like that, I just don't think it's, it's a, a, uh, a sustainable model to try to go out and draft a Westbrook, uh, you know, a Jeff Green. We've, uh, we've talked about this yeah, before. A it's, it's a... You just can't do it. But you can do – I think there are opportunities like with, with Harden when he got picked up. He was available. You know, Houston went out and took advantage of that. Um, you can you can take advantage when these stars are trying to move things around those leftover pieces. I think that I think what Denver's done is the real model for what you can do, and I think that's what Dennis Lindsay is talking about with flexibility. You, if you're in a situation where when those kinds of things happen, you can be a team that can get in on that conversation. I, I think I think there's something to be said then for that kind of flexibility. Well, so but you have to remember that that Denver, the way that Denver built that team, started with a number three overall pick in the in the 2004 or 2003 2003 NBA draft mm. um with Carmelo Anthony right. without that i mean it's not it's not like they were slapping together a, a piecemeal you know uh collection of of has-beens or something pieces, and turning yeah. that into all these all these great players that they got back from or good players they got back from the Knicks that have made them into a contender in the west so there is still that there is still that component of it that that you have to start somewhere. And then, of course, that invites, and I don't know if we want to go down this road, but that invites comparisons to the Darren Williams trade. Right. Yeah, I, I, that's a good point. You know, if you go all the way back, they did have to have a piece to be able to be involved in that conversation. So the question is now, did the Jazz get the right pieces out of that player? I mean, I, with with the way Darren Williams has turned out, I still think that was the right trade to make. I think that they really dodged the bullet by... They got the prime years out of Darren Williams. They got rid of him just in time, and and I think that the pieces they got back, they got value. I know there's been some criticism that he was a you don't get rid of a transformational point guard and things like that. Sure, but um, for whatever reason, I think the Jazz were able to, you know, get rid of their right guy. They, I mean, so the other thing you have to keep in mind is that that 
and and I know there's been some debate about this as well. At the time, everyone's assumption was Darren is out of here after his contract. And whether the fact that he signed that he ended up staying with New Jersey or sorry with Brooklyn doesn't mean that he would have stayed in Salt Lake. Right. The I mean basic risk management states that if you if if you're if you believe that there's a 50% probability that he's gone and you get 50 cents back on the dollar that is an even transaction that that is that is I mean I'm probably there are probably some risk managers from local <laughs> banks out there saying that this guy doesn't know what he's talking about and maybe not I mean I was just, I'm remembering this from some ancient economics classes but but it, I mean it makes sense like there is some there is some probability that he is gone and that factors into what you're willing to take back because um, you know, obviously, if 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 uh, Brook, you know, New Jersey at the time, now Brooklyn, if they think that Darren is for sure staying in Salt Lake after his contract, that raises um, the the asking price that that the Jazz could have demanded. Yeah, I, uh, I I'm still convinced that they did the right thing. Just from being around him, I, I just I, I just didn't <laughs> I, I just don't think that the team really wanted to have him around. I, I think that's what it boiled down to. They just didn't think he wanted to be here, whatever. And and maybe they had that conversation. I don't think either side really ever communicated well. I know there's people that say it's this, you know, it's the Jazz's fault, it's Darren Williams' fault. When it comes down to it, I think it's both, you know, of their fault. And the same thing goes with Raja Bell. I mean, if we can shift gears on that a little bit. When they let him go... I, I think that was just a bad situation for everybody. Nobody looks good at the end of that. I mean, of course, I think they did the right thing in not letting him resign with a team. Why should they give him a buyout, let him go and sign with another team and, and play well? You know, if they're going to pay him, they might as well hold him until after the death. I know it's kind of a, you know, a, you know, twisting the knife a little bit, but why not? You know, and I think what we've seen from um, from Derek Fisher. You know, you you can only get fishered once. You only yeah. you only get fishered one time, and then you or per team, right? Is that so? He's done it to three teams now. Well, I was going to say from a, a more competitive standpoint, we actually got fishered the other night in the second quarter when he was raining down threes on us. That was that was. I wanted to throw my remote through my television. I know. Let's talk about that game for just one second. I thought it was, I thought it was humiliating. I thought it was embarrassing. I thought there were moments, and you know, I tweeted about it that. The guys seem so non-confrontational in those kinds of things that I was corrected a little bit. I'm I was mad when you know there were this happened in the Knicks game too when guys are just kind of J.R. Smith is doing you know triple pumps down the lane and every, nobody is even kind of looking at him. But they the time for for the Jazz to kind of put a guy on the floor is in the first quarter and not in the fourth quarter. If you're not willing to do it in the first quarter, then you shouldn't you know, try to act Great like point. the tough guy in the fourth quarter. And I get that, but it was just embarrassing the way. And I, I've talked to Gordon Hayward about this, and I always ask him, like, why do you always walk away from things? You don't look a guy in the eye. You know, you don't ever stare anybody down. You don't talk anything. And I think part of it is his persona, but he always goes back to his tennis preparation and saying that in tennis you have to keep a mental edge and that when those kinds of things happen that you um, – by by not losing your cool, that it actually rattles your opponent. And, I mean, I get that. Maybe that works in tennis, but I watch a lot of tennis, and I, I see a lot of guys not doing that, you know? You I really watch a jo- lot of tennis? Yeah, That's I do. The, yeah, I didn't know that. I think Djokovic is the exception. 
Yeah. You think he's that way or you think he's just because he's so outspoken and, and demonstrative? That I he... think he feeds off of his own demonstrative demonstrativity, if that's a word, <laughs> to uh, to function well and play at his highest level. If I watched the Australian Open a couple couple months back and uh, he started out slow and then he started to collect some aces and uh, grind Andy Murray into the ground and you could see his emotions flaring up and he really seemed to feed off of his own emotions and uh, soar to a higher level. Right, he gets that. super fired up and he's, he's, you know, he's really in his opponent's mind. I mean, he's a big guy, he's demonstrative, he's, he's, he's got that mental edge. And so I don't quite buy the tennis analogy. I don't think anybody is out there getting rattled because... He's not looking them down. So I, I tweeted about it when it happened. I said, is there a term in animal training terms, like for what Gordon Hayward does to avoid this confrontation? He, like, looks down. He won't look him in the eye. And I just think that's why you've got guys like Derek Fisher going right at him, you know? These guys are all trying to, like, just attack him because they think that he's he, – maybe in his mind he's not broken mentally, but that's what it looks like to an opponent. I think they look like this guy's not going to stand up for himself. This guy's not going to – Stand up. So I'm not asking for any of the jazz guys to be punks or to fight. We've talked about this before. But all I think that needs to happen is just a little bit of standing up for yourself. It just looks, it just looks embarrassing when you don't uh, protect the lane. You know, you let someone, you know, knock you down. You don't do anything about it. Um, you know, it's not a league where you – nobody wants to lose their money. Nobody wants to get fined. Nobody wants to punch anybody in the face. But I don't know. I'm – I just think that they need to have a little bit more pride because the games like the Knicks and the games like OKC, the Jazz didn't even belong on the court. And I was sitting next to Nasalki at, uh, oh, I can't remember what the game was. It was a couple games ago when the Jazz lost. What was that last Jazz loss at home? I'm blanking on my... Um, I can tell you. Give me, give me a second. It was... Uh, I can't remember. This is, this oh, great, it was great radio. Yeah, I know. I can't remember. No, but um, oh, it was Atlanta, probably. Yeah, the Wednesday night. Yeah, yeah. a couple yeah. Of weeks back. But That's he was one. saying, he was saying, if I was a ticket holder, I would feel like, I, you know, I deserve my money back. Like, just saying that, you know, they're not even putting a good product on on the on the court with that. So. I, I think people are willing to put up with, with losses. They're, they're, they're willing to put up with, like, a struggling team, but all they want is effort. And if they don't see effort and they don't see fight, then nobody wants any part of that, and they're just going to tune out. So what's going on? I felt like at the end of the road trip that there was danger of the, of the coaching staff losing the players. And that was the first time I'd really felt that all season long. And the reason was it just looked like they had a crazy green light. And I can't imagine that that was part of the scouting report that, that coach Corbin said, Hey guys, go out, shoot at 20 seconds in the shot clock, shoot long threes. Even Gordon Hayward was shooting all kinds of crazy threes. Now I don't mean to stir anything up or, or get into any kind of yeah, just, it's just a perception, but his, his dad on Twitter has I, I feel like he's subtweeting and, and kind of, but I mean, guys, it's no, it's no news that family members want the best for their guy. I mean, it's the same thing at any level of sport where people think their son should be playing the entire game that they think they're or their the older brother. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like when it happened with with Devin Harris, you know, his brother is pretty outspoken, and I don't think that it necessarily was always exactly the the, the case. I, I think you got to include what he says you know, with the the big picture. 
But that being said, I think Gordon Hayward's dad even is is expressing a little bit of discontent with what's going on. And so then I saw Gordon Hayward, who's usually a pretty disciplined player. You can usually count on him to kind of try to keep things together. He's even shooting long threes. He's even got Matt Harpering on the broadcast saying things like, well, that's a bad shot. Why is he taking that shot? And, uh, you know, he's usually kind of got golden boy status. <laughs> yeah. And so when people even on the broadcast are saying, whoa, what's, what's Hayward doing? Why is he taking that shot? It makes me wonder if guys are all just deciding, like, oh, I'm just going to go. Just gonna go get let mine. it loose, yeah. Just get it, get it going. I don't know. Um, let's talk a little bit about the the fan night that happened the other day. So, uh, Greg Miller puts out a tweet in the morning and invites a couple fans to come down to the arena. And uh, the three fans, um, no coincidence, I think, are all pretty outspoken critics of the team. And as far as I'm concerned, it was a pretty obvious like keep your friends close and your enemies closer kind of thing where. I mean, I, I, like, I like the idea. I think it's a great idea to reach out to some of your vocal critics, get a chance to see, let them see the inside. I don't think there's anything insidious about it, but I think it was pretty obvious what was going on. One of the guys lives in Virginia. He couldn't come out. The other guy is mostly a, a football guy. He's kind of a football blogger, but he also follows the jazz. And then the other one is our famous Lost Taco Vendor. And uh, Lost Taco Vendor didn't respond all day long and Twitter turned into um, a, a kind of a, uh, a bash session on him because fans were furious that he wasn't accepting the opportunity to sit courtside with the owner and, and watch the game. Um, I don't, he, in his defense, he claims that he was in court and didn't have access to his phone and didn't check it. Well, and also and in his defense, see. he really doesn't ever tweet during the day. I mean, so it's- I, I think it's ridiculous. I think he absolutely saw it during the day. There's no chance. All of, us, all of us who are addicted to Twitter, we get a chance to check it every four hours at least. Even if, I don't know what that was. Um, no, but I just don't think there's any way. I, I, don't, I just don't believe his story that he didn't check Twitter, that he was in court, and he didn't have access to it all day long until 6.30 at night. There's, there's no chance. I don't, I don't think there's any chance. But, so as, as someone, as someone who, who has a, you know, I, I'm certainly, I don't have probably the, the, the busiest schedule of ever of all of our listeners, but I I go I go entire days without checking Twitter, and I turn off my my alerts on my phone. I mean, I, I this is I, I kind of can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm I'm gonna gi- I'm gonna give Lost Taco Vendor the benefit of okay. the doubt on this one. Okay, that's fair. And he and I DM'd a little bit, he, and he stuck with his story, so you know I can take him at his word there. But my point is, he plays a character. I mean, he very clearly is playing a character. He's not. That's not who he is, and I'm not saying it's, it's dishonest or it isn't. It's just it's not that, – that person doesn't exist. So it would be the same thing if there's another jazz Twitter who's Gary the Unicorn. Gary the Unicorn is not a unicorn. You can't have him come down and That's sit courtside with the owner because he doesn't exist. There's a person behind there who's created a character, Gary the Unicorn, and he's funny, and he's a great Twitter follow, but he's not a real unicorn. It's the same thing with Lost Taco Vendor. He's not, you know, he, he's not a real – person he's a character and i think he does some great work obviously he stirs the pot and says some things that you know are ridiculous to get effect and that's 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 his job you know that's what he does and he does it really well and so i just thought people coming down on him really hard needed to kind of lay off him a little bit so we got a tweet from from alan who was one of the um one of the one of the fans who was there and he says 
Being on the floor on Monday, I'm here to say Corbin has not lost the players. They respect him. It was very apparent. Well, and I've said that all year long. Like, I, I think when you're around Ty Corbin, you, you understand that, uh, I mean, I hear really mean things about him. On Twitter, people email me and have really harsh opinions, and I think it's absolutely ridiculous because when you're around him and you see how he interacts with the players, I think it's actually a strength that he has. It's probably one of his best qualities as a, as a, as a coach the way that he's able to relate to the players and and keep them involved, and they they absolutely really respect him. I think that's true, um, but I I don't I think they I I think there's still something to that. I'm not going to completely back away from that. I do think it's not a madhouse, and I don't think there's a lot of discontent. But I think that if it keeps losing, I think guys will continue to kind of do their own thing. I'm not I, I'm not saying it's a full uh, mutiny. But the, well, the the cracks the, and there's there are factors even even outside of Coach Corbin the fact that we've got nine unrestricted free agents on the roster and everyone wants to cash in at the end of the season that's going to drive people we've talked about this before that's going to drive people to get there to get theirs yeah and, and especially as you as the team frankly starts to fade a little bit from the play I mean sitting in in ninth right now um you know that there is that there is that tendency I, I can absolutely see i mean you might tell me that you don't think that, that that they're prone to this but i could absolutely see a team that that sees the cards being stacked against them finally you know for the first time all year they're on the outside well not not and they have been on the outside looking in uh but the you know as we're coming down the stretch for the first time they're on the outside looking in uh of the playoff uh picture and they look at their contract situations. They look at what the team. They look at the team fading, and the tendency is where before you could you could make the case. Look, I want to I want to be on a playoff team. I want to I want to be on you know national TV mm-hmm. and be able to show my 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 upcoming suitors who I am. Now there's it's like I've got to get this in because there isn't there aren't there isn't even going to be four games for me after in the postseason to 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 be on the floor and to 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 uh, showcase get, to get a contract. Yeah. Um, John Van Wagner on, on Twitter said what I was trying to say, and that is they may respect him, but they don't believe in his system. And I think that's a, a perfect way to look at it. I don't think that they – you can follow him, Southpaw Van Wag, if you want. But I, I think he said it perfectly. I think they totally respect him, but they don't go out there feeling confident. I think the guys – clearly you look at them on the floor. If they have something that they're trying to do, I don't see it. And um, we're going to talk. We're going to take a break in a second. We'll come back and talk about this. The famous Zach Lowe Grantland piece. Where yes, he very excited to talk about this. Broke into some of the things. Let's take a break now, though. We'll come back on the other side and uh, we'll talk about it. It's ninety-seven five twelve eight of the zone. The Saturday show. All right, welcome back to the Saturday show on 97.5 FM and 1280 AM. It's the Sports Leader. I'm Spencer Hall, um, Salt City Hoops on Twitter. Benjamin Gaines is here. We've got uh, Justin Sweeney gets it on Twitter. Greetings. And uh, got Patrick Bauman on the other side of the glass. He's our Irishman. Um, McGregor Zone on Twitter. We've got Zach Brady on the other side helping out too. Um, there's a big St. Patrick's Day parade happening downtown. There's also... What appears to be like a kitty cheerleader camp or something going around. There's like a million little tiny kitty cheerleaders walking around. So downtown is bizarre. It's like is, people is, is dressed honey, up is like boo boo le- in the house. Yeah, that's what it looks like. So we've got like leprechauns walking down the street with like little five year old cheerleaders and things. It's just a mess. 
So <laughs> parking my, parking was interesting today. Yeah. The Ides of March, too, by the way. That's right. So beware the Ides of March. Or is that tomorrow? It's the 16th. No, it was yesterday. Oh, the 15th. Dang it. I missed it. <laughs> no, it's a good thing. <laughs> you, you want to miss it, right? I survived like, it. That's a good thing. You were supposed to beware it, and I survived it. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about the Zach Lowe piece. Um, so Zach Lowe writes for Grantland, which is uh, Bill Simmons' ESPN um, page, and uh, he's done some great breakdowns of the jazz that kind of every time he, he writes about the jazz, it gets everybody talking. Um, he did some nice analysis, and the, the, the brutal, brutal kind of line that, that was the, the crusher was when he said that it's possible that he's that Coach Corbin is using the wrong players at the wrong times in the wrong situations, and that that's the way the evidence looks. Dennis Lindsay then came on the radio, um, I think it was yesterday or the day before, gave a great uh, interview on 1280 and talked about his approach to analytics. And I think he put a lot of jazz fans' minds at ease that he knows what he's doing, he's aware, he's paying attention. I think that's all that people want to know. They want to feel like somebody's you know, at the helm of the ship and, and has some vision and knows what they're doing. He said you, know, that you, can, you can torture the numbers until you get whatever you want. And, I, and obviously that's true. I think you can make that case. David Locke on his tip-off show made the point that uh, in, in refuting something that Zach Lowe said, which was that the Jazz are one of only uh, two teams, this, if they make it this year and then last year when they made the playoffs, were one of the only teams that's made it playing as poorly. And, and, and he mentioned some of the statistics that they're the only teams that have made it. And David Locke took the reverse position in saying, why not look at it the other way, saying they're the only team that's been able to make it, blah, 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 and kind of spin it in a positive. And I, I didn't quite buy that approach, but I get what he's trying to say, that, that maybe there's something we're missing in the numbers because the Jazz are still being successful and, and, and really remarkably so considering the deficiencies that they have. And so David Locke's point was, shouldn't that be credit to the coach if despite really strong deficiencies among the players and the playing style that the team is still able to get into the playoffs. And, and then that's when David, or, you know, Dennis Lindsay made the point that you can torture the numbers and find whatever you're, whatever you're looking for. I think uh, there's maybe a little bit of truth all the way around. I think that some of the things that the coach has done, I think, have been more chemistry-wise. And this gets back to me thinking that he's a, he's a good manager of, of personalities and relationships. There's kind of an unspoken deal between – um, the backup point guards, Earl Watson and Jamal Tinsley, to kind of keep them happy. One plays one game, one plays another, kind of depending on the matchup. And they've both kind of bought into that more than they would have. I mean, Earl Watson, I think, is the most volatile of the of the current players as far as, like, he could be – his passion kind of leads him to, to sometimes maybe lean towards disgruntled. And I don't think he, he's gotten to that point, but I think it's credit to Coach Corbin for being able to maintain – him and what he's doing. That being said, I think Zach's still right on a lot of things, that there's no getting around the fact that end-of-game situations, um, what to do on the pick-and-roll, how to use some of the players, different lineup choices. Um, I, I, I just don't think there's any way that you can look and, and can say that the team is you know, choosing the right, the right ones. I think 
kind of my approach, the reason that there's been some backlash towards Coach Corbin's uh, post-game interviews and the things he does on shoot-around and things like that, he's been a little bit defensive with some of the beat writers and some of the media. And I think it comes down to the fact that he's, he's kind of a go-by-your-gut. He's also He used to be the video coordinator for the team when he was an assistant with Coach Sloan. So it's not like he doesn't understand the numbers. He's, he's somebody who's been in charge of that for a while. So it's not like he's a complete gut guy. He's looking at these numbers, but at the same time, he, he's relying on 16 years in the league, a lot of experience coaching. And I think for him it's very frustrating to have to turn around and explain that to someone who clearly doesn't have his breadth of experience. And he just doesn't have the way to say it, or maybe he doesn't want to, or whatever. But the thing that I think anybody wants is they want to have a little bit of the rationale. They want to know why he's doing it. With Coach Sloan, he, his reason, he was so stubborn, and his reasons were always so silly. They were these homespun aphorisms that didn't make sense. You can't play in a tuxedo, you know, getting sideways with somebody. Like, all these things that don't really mean anything, but he would at least offer that up as a reason. And I think that was enough to placate the fans, you know. And so I think just if I were offering any advice, he doesn't need my advice. But if Coach Corbin... If you're listening out there. Yeah, I know. And if you are, I'm sorry. I apologize. No, but if... Uh, my word of advice would be just offer some sort of a basis for the, the choice that you're making. That's all people want to know. We went with this because this is why. I think people just want to have a reason. I think he, he goes with a, a feel and goes with intuition, but but... That's not a reason enough. You know, people want to know kind of what the, what the basis is, what's the underlying kind of theory and philosophy that kind of informs those decisions. So I, I'm just sitting here thinking how hard it is to quantify the impact of a head coach. Mm. We have things like lineups. And by the way, I want to give a shout out to our man Andy B. Larson, who yesterday tweeted out his analysis that showed that when Jefferson, when, when Big Al is not on the floor, the Jazz are a top three defensive team in the NBA, which is mind-blowing and, and really interesting. I mean, there, there are all kinds of directions you can go in with that. I asked Andy if he knows what the, if he had like defensive rating numbers for each individual player when Jefferson is not on the floor so we can see who is, who is driving the team to be that good. Um, so we have those, we have that, and we can judge coach Corbin on those numbers, but there are other things. Chemistry is one that you mentioned, um, teaching, uh, you know, little things like, like, um, in-game situations that aren't as quantifiable right now. We don't really have data that help us understand that. Um, there is, there is some research that has been done on how to break down the impact of a coach and whether you buy into it or not is, is another matter. Um, it's it's in a book um, that I would actually recommend everyone everyone read. I thought it was fascinating. It's a short read. It's called Stumbling on Wins. You can get it on Amazon. Um, it, the the subtitle is Two Economists Expose the Pitfalls on the Road to Victory in Professional Sports. And in there they have a chapter. I think the book was written uh, in like two, 2008 or it's 2010. So it's pretty recent. They had a chapter on NBA head coaches and which ones which ones according to their you know econometric analysis actually. Uh, add wins to their teams as opposed to ones who are sort of, you know, uh, you know, they're, they're neutral. And, and those of course, who, um, who are, who are, have a negative impact on their team. I can't remember off the top of my head, um, how they reach these conclusions. So I'll have to go back and, and reread the book, but it's a phenomenal, um, I mean, it's just really interesting to see how these two economists attack the world of professional sports. Um, that, that 
said, um, you know, I, I think. So who was at the top of their list? <laughs> Do you remember? Yeah, Phil Jackson. Well, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't think anybody. Well, would disagree so with so that. well, but he, the reason they would disagree with that is the same. It's the same thing that Jazz fans love to say to Lakers fans every time they they used to trash talk, which is. The reason your coach is so amazing is that he, he has he has the best right. Yeah, Kobe and, so, and Shaq and Jordan. So this analysis, nice, nice list. right, right, and this analysis is designed to um, eliminate that a little bit, or right? Ne- neutralize the 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 players that right, you have, right? Um, so anyway, that's it's just something to check out. Uh, so if it's designed to neutralize that, they're saying that he would be. They're that saying great. that Phil is actually a great coach. Hmm. At, at you know, give him give him a. Um, I mean that's no bombshell, but right. I, I I do think, you know, I I would have liked to have seen him coach a team or two, you know, where it's just sure. Smush Parker, no no Kobe, sure, and uh, you know, gotta go look back at the days of the Albany Patroons, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, the CBA <laughs> days, and see how he see how that goes. Um, the question uh, brought up by a couple of people on Twitter, David Marshall and, and Alan Zog, they're wondering if the players maybe just aren't executing what the coach says that maybe the coach is saying it, the players just aren't executing it. I think there's some truth to that. I think I, well, I it comes back to what you were saying and uh, what you were saying about uh, this is David, and this is David Locke's position. David right. Locke's position is that the players just aren't that good. And, uh, I, I, I don't think looking it's at the backcourt, it's hard to, it's hard to argue with that when you look at the backcourt. Yeah. I mean, nobody's winning. Nobody's getting into the playoffs usually with yeah. the, the point guards and stuff that we have. I think it is true a little bit, though. I don't think, you know, uh, kind of the chaotic end of possession or end of quarter uh, flow from Mo Williams is is drawn up on a on a board. You know, right. I'm I mean, not that, sure those that, those are the kinds of situations that work really well when you have that go to guy, when you have a, a team a team leader who you can go to 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 uh, make sure that everyone is in line and and is executing and the Jazz. Don't have that among their among their among the team strengths is not that guy, and I, when we've talked about this, I feel like we talk about this every week. But a lot of the a lot of the inconsistency, a lot of the uh, you know losing these these close games on the road comes back to that that guy. I think I mean it, it it has to. I mean look at other teams that are able to win those games consistently in those situations, and they have they have that player. I'm I'm. Still on board with Dennis Lindsay. I think that this offseason is going to be very interesting. I, in my conversations with him, I've, I've come away feeling like he's a very com- competent, um, hardworking, uh, you know, great uh, manager. And I think he's going to be someone who does a good job and, and needs a chance to prove it. This offseason is going to be his time to kind of see what he does. The uh, this is I mean they th- this the offseason is going to can they kick the can and now it has to ha- oh, something yeah. has to happen. This this summer. offseason is going to test Dennis Lindsay like virtually no offseason in the history of the NBA has tested a general manager. Yeah. He has to put together basically a whole roster. Yeah. Right? I mean, you're talking about three or four players coming back and then you got to put you got to put a team together. So I I I think I think this this off season will teach us a lot, although it it does make me wonder. Um, you know, I, I can't remember a team that's been in this a situation like this. It, it's kind of a unique situation. I'm sure there are. So, you know, if you're out there on Twitter, uh, you know, f- please tweet at me other teams that have had nine unrestricted free agents. Um, <laughs> you know, including uh, what uh, four fifths of the starting lineup. Um, so, 
I just, you know, there, so we will learn a lot about him, but I also wonder if it's not a really a representative offseason. It's, 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 this is trial by fire right. to the extreme. He's not going to have this every year. but Right, it, right. And, and so, I, you know, it makes me wonder, would Sam Presti or uh, R.C. Buford do any better given the, given the, the, the difficulty of, of putting together a team for next season? Interesting, interesting. I'm looking forward to it, and I, I think I, I, I think he's going to pull off some good things. I'm excited for it. So let's take a quick break. We'll be back on the other side. It's 97.5, 1280 The Zone, the sports leader. All right, welcome back to the St. Patrick's Day edition. Of the Saturday show on 97.5, 12 of the zone. Um, you got green on. Was that completely un- unintentional? unintentional. I, I don't, I'm not a big, uh, I'm not a big holiday guy. Well, you know, here's what I was talking about earlier. And I think it's very, I think it's an important thing that needs to happen nationwide. Obviously the day after the Super Bowl should be a national holiday. People shouldn't have to go in and work that day. But the first week of the NCAA tournament should also be a national holiday. And why can't we move St. Patrick's Day a little bit up and kind of just have one big long weekend that starts? We get Thursday, Friday off. We get to watch the first round, and then and then finish with St. Patrick's Day. Is that what you're saying? Or or I, I just think it all gets combined. But maybe that's too much because then people have to go do their parades. So maybe the Saturday before is St. Patrick's Day. Falls on a Saturday, and then. The next Thursday, Friday are, are also a national holiday, and we get that off. I just, I just feel like, look, people, college students are in the back of the class Thursday and Friday worthless. People are at work. I mean, the fact that ESPN even has, like, a boss button that makes it so you can— It's phenomenal. It's hilarious. Pops up a little Excel <laughs> spreadsheet. Oh, it's great. I, so you can toggle it back and forth. Nobody is working on those days. I'm taking, I'm taking them off uh, as, as, you know, as time off. Uh, and I may even go into the office. I mean, that's the thing. I may go and just, you know, have the freedom to, to sit at my desk and watch the games. But see, can you do that? Because I always, even if I'm not getting paid, like if I'm going to stay late, I always feel like an idiot at work if I'm like, people are walking by and I'm watching a game. I feel like I have to explain to every single one of them, no, I, I'm staying late. Like I'm just taking, I'm, I'm on break. That's a good, you know? it's a good point. It's a good point. I, I, Why wouldn't you just stay at home? Because so I've got friends, I've got friends. You have to take care of the kid. Well, it's not even that. It's that I've got friends at work. You know, we do we do a contest. Oh, we, it's okay. not, you know, it's not a pool. We don't have a buy-in. Can you but guys go down at Adobe that nice new break roomy thing? We could like do that. that. We could do that. And you have a big like screen there. Why don't they just drop that down? I'm, sh- I'm sure there will be something all this like that. lifestyle stuff. I'm know? sure there will be something like that. I, I don't know. It's our first year in the new in the new build, first first tournament this in the new is, building. This is your chance to make a tradition. A tradition unlike any other. That's a good point. You know, I, I'll, like, I'm like gonna, the masters. I'm going to start sending some text messages right now, now right after you, the show. If you can create that culture at Adobe, you're going to take over for, you know, you will be the employment destination. Forget Vivint and their free lunch and all that stuff. You guys need to have March Madness. Thursday and Friday <laughs> are off. Everybody come in, <laughs> hang out. We'll throw it oh, up I on don't big know screens. About, uh, yeah, I don't, know, I don't know if we can do the whole everyone take the day off, but maybe we can throw up uh, the – on the basketball court, they actually have um, giant – Projection screens that oh, drop nice. down, so we could uh, we could actually play some ball while watching March Madness. Now that that's, that's pretty what phenomenal. you see from the freeway, right? Yes. When you drive past the new Adobe building, that's the basketball. So court, if you're right? heading south, you see the thing that juts out. It's a little bit shorter, um, and it kind of cantilevers out over the road. 
a little bit. That's the basketball court, and it's got a big Adobe logo on the back wall. If at night, it's usually got the lights yeah, on. It's so cool to drive past and see that it's a big basketball court. I yeah, re- I respect that that they put the basketball court front and center. Yeah, well, it's I mean, it's it's a unique thing. It's in fact, it's the only basketball court that I have ever played on that has an NBA three point line. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. They, did they paint both? Or they painted it... both. Huh, that's interesting. Uh, they may have even painted all three. They might, they might have high school, college, and, and NBA. I, I line. You start to get all kinds of lines. Just, yeah, just do know. the same line. Everybody shoot from the same place. I don't know. Let's talk, let's talk a little bit about um, the NCAA tournament really quickly. Tell me who you got. This is the year where you could literally flip a coin for each of the 63 matchups when you evaluate that. your bracket. I might do that. And um, therefore, I think this is a great year to take a risk on a mid-major. So this could very well be Gonzaga's year. They could uh, foreseeably flame out in the second round or they could win it all. Um, if you want one sure thing and you want to feel good about your pick, the educated guess has to be the Indiana Hoosiers. They've lost a few games out of most of the teams uh, that will fill out the 64-68 team field. They play in what seems to be close to the consensus best conference in the nation, the Big Ten. There's you know, probably four teams right now that could take it all uh, this year from that conference. So I think the most safe bet is Indiana, and I'm a big Tom Crean guy. Uh, they have a good inside-outside game. They have all the requisite role players to fulfill a championship squad. Guys They've got like those warm-ups, Will too. Sheehy. They've got those like clown warm-up pants, too. That's, That's been around all the time, and uh, compared to all the stuff that Adidas yeah. has been coming out with it's lately, terrible. throwing <laughs> tiger vomit on various teams, oh my goodness. Uh, shorts, poor teams like oh. those Notre, Notre Dame, Dame and Cincinnati. Never watching another Notre Dame basketball game again. If Honestly, like I saw somebody tweeted the other day that whoever was the designer behind that needs to lose his job without compensation. I feel so bad because I have some friends who work at both companies, at Adidas and Nike, and they they have great creativity skills. And I'm pretty sure they haven't ascended to the ranks where they have any input on the atrocities that have been covering those teams. But still, you just feel bad uh, that teams like Notre Dame, they've they've been known for literally over a century of tradition. And (laughs) they're kind of celebrated for their conservatism in uh, what they parade out both on the football field and the basketball court. And all that... uh, all, all that they've done terrible. to cultivate that brand has been just demolished over the past week. Yeah, it's terrible. Indiana down 40-31 to Wisconsin right now, by the way. Uh, so that's that's happening. So uh, taking, a, taking a little bit of a jazz angle on the NCAA tournament, there are a few players who are going to be involved and some that probably won't who we, we've heard about as potential uh, targets for the Jazz in the in the upcoming draft, depending on where the Jazz end up. One of those is Michigan's Trey Burke, point guard, a uh, little shorter than I think we'd like, um, and some questions about athleticism, but all the fundamentals, um, you know, and, and a good um, a, a good playmaker. What are your What are your thoughts? You know. Personally, I would prefer a point guard that's a little bit bigger than six feet. Trey Burke has skills. Michigan, for most of the season until lately, when they've been in a little bit of a uh, a mini free fall, uh, they've been very competitive. They've been a top 10 team, and Trey Burke's been a huge reason for that. There's a lot of talent on that uh, team headed up by John Beeline. He's a, he's definitely a player to look for, especially since right now it looks like the Jazz are uh, apt to choose in that 12 to 14 range. I'm very excited about what's coming up this season. Next weekend, 
uh, here at Energy Solutions Arena. That's going to be a time for Dennis Lindsay to really shine because if you think about it a couple years back in that Gordon Hayward draft, uh, he was taken ninth in the draft, but uh, in that previous March, two months back, I don't know if he was even considered to be a lottery pick. And then uh, Energy Solutions Arena, they hosted the regional, that's right. and that's when Gordon Hayward and Butler had their coming out party they back in Syracuse. 2010. They had some big games. Gus Johnson uh, helped really pipe <laughs> up and As he always bring does. the spotlight to those Butler games in which Gordon Hayward uh, was really well noticed for the first time by the nation at large. So one other, one other little plug for that Stumbling on Wins book that we talked about earlier. They actually go into the impact of making a Final Four on your draft position. And they, 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 they prove, or at least attempt to prove, that GMs dramatically over, uh, overvalue players who've made the previous Final Four, and you can, you can see that in a number of picks. I, don't, I, I, wouldn't, I would say that Gordon is, is an exception to that in that he has turned out to be a solid NBA player, but you have, you know, the, the, the past several years of drafts are riddled with players who that, have snuck into the lottery on a strong tournament. That's so. interesting because I, I always feel like the, uh, they, they try, they recognize that, and so they try to take the other tack, like, oh, it doesn't matter, we look at the whole picture, blah, blah, blah. All these things, and so I wonder sometimes if they they have a tendency to overthink it and like not take a guy when there's something about winners, you know, guys who can take a team that deep. I, I just think there's something about sure. that guy. Dwayne Wade from 2003 is actually a great example. He took an unheralded Marquette team to the Final Four. The previous year, he was a quiet sophomore that came out of nowhere. Marquette made a little bit of noise before being bounced in, I think, the first or second round of the NCAA tournament. With a year under his belt, he came back the following year, took him all the way to the Final Four. Everybody knew who Dwayne Wade was, and eventually he went uh, fifth overall of the Miami Heat, and the rest is history. On the other side of the token, you take a guy into account like uh, Joe Alexander, who I believe back in 2008 had a great two-week stretch of shooting culminating in a second-round upset uh, by West Virginia over Duke. All the scouts were salivating over Joe Alexander, and he was out of the NBA in two years after he was yep. taken much too high 11th overall by the Milwaukee Bucks. So let's, I'm going to bounce two other guys off you real quick. We, we've got just a, a couple minutes left. Uh, the first is a guy that has, well, there's been a little bit of a Twitter conversation during the show about him. He's probably a little bit out of reach for the Jazz, but there's a potential you know, you could, in theory, move up. And that's Victor Oladipo from Indiana. What are your thoughts? Very juicy player right now because he's a recent convert, actually, to his position at the two-guard. I believe he's 6'5", so he has the size. The scouts seem to think and agree that he has the athleticism as well. You talked about earlier uh, that intangible factor of being a winner. Uh, he obviously passes the test in that regard. Um, so you wonder what Victor Oladipo can do. Uh, he's, he's great at the college level. You wonder if he can translate his game to the NBA level. He appears to be mostly a pure two guard, and looking at the Jazz's roster, if you love Gordon, personally I love Gordon Hayward and Alec Burks. He's also a two guard who I love uh, his ability to do some ball handling for seven to ten minutes a game, so it remains to be seen if you were to take Victor Oladipo how exactly he would fit into the Jazz lineup. Another another, another two guard who played his college ball in the state of Indiana. And also coached by Tom Crean. That's right. Uh, yeah, there you go. So, uh, so last one real quick, uh, and that is, and this is a guy that jazz fans have been talking about a little bit. He's not going to be in the tournament, so don't, don't look for him. Uh, don't look for him over the next couple of weeks, but that's Mike Cabongo from Texas. What are your thoughts? Uh, Mike Cabongo, a pretty raw guy. Um, if you want to talk about winners, really struggled this year with Texas, but you also have to uh, 
Yeah, Keep in bizarre, mind that he did that, not play yeah. very much. He had the eligibility issues plaguing him for probably about two-thirds of the season. Yeah. So Mike Abonga right now, really a project, but um, he's good to keep an eye on. I have to go and recheck Texas's record. They 16 may be, and 17. So there. they may make it into the NIT. In that case, they may have some more uh, postseason games ahead of them, and uh, you can get a second look at Mike Abongo late into March. That would be good. That would be good. He's, he's one who's projected to go right where the Jazz may end up. So there you go. Go, Spencer. There's your uh, your little brief primer on the NCAA that tournament. Perfect. That was perfect because I'm I'm terrible with the college stuff. I don't watch it. I don't pay attention to it. And so this is very helpful to to have you guys go over that. All right, Jazz at Mem- Jazz have Memphis in the house tonight. Interesting. Then they've got the Knicks in town on Monday. So we'll see how that goes. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back next week. It's the Saturday show on 97.5, 1280 of the Zone, the Sports Leader. Jake Scott and Tony Parks. You know what Adrian Danley is doing now? Uh, VP of Sales for some corporation. No. Okay. He lives in Maryland. Okay. And is a crossing guard for a middle school, making a whopping fourteen thousand six hundred eighty-five.